0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Hi, welcome to the South Australian Country Hour today. I'm Cassie Half. Coming up, i we'll have the latest on the development of a Vaccine to protect against Japanese encephalitis. Uh, we've heard about it in humans recently, but uh, or at least uh, the detections, I should say, of uh, the illness in uh, the mosquitoes. But uh, we'll get an idea of how this vaccine's going, the development of it, and how much is going to be needed.
3: So you know, probably up to up to around four hundred thousand doses is uh, is where we'd be uh, looking at.
2: More on that soon. And National Farmers Federation President Fiona Simpson returns from Europe. i will have the latest on the free trade deal negotiations with the UK and Europe as well. But first up today, agriculture is obviously a risky business but the head of a major bank says he doesn't see the industry industry steaming towards difficult financial times just yet. That's mostly due to the higher commodity returns allowing many farmers to repay their debts in the last three years. CEO and regional manager of Rabobank Australia and New Zealand Peter Noblanch, says that his final few months as head of the bank, uh, uh, in this time he sees the continuation of some of the best farming opportunities in his 27 years in the lending sector.
4: Yes, there has been a big jump in interest rates. So if you look at the Reserve Bank of Australia just going from 0.1% to 3.1% where they are now, that's a big move in interest rates. And I think the economists are saying the same thing you've just said, and that is there's probably a few more interest rates left this year. But the hopeful signs are that um, inflation is starting to be tamed a little bit, and that's the global impacts of inflation as well that are impacting that, so the input costs, the energy costs. Um, yeah, and input for farming, fertiliser costs are coming back a little bit. But the Reserve Bank of Australia may be starting to you know, sort of come towards the end of it. Now, people are talking about two more 25 point interest rate rises. That would be fantastic. The important thing would be for when they start to trim on the other side and if our economy still stays in a positive space. So you know, they're forecasting um, GDP of around 1.4 or 1.6% per annum. So Australia's still got growth not looking at recession, but it's a very fine line. So we'll see how we go there. For farmers, my view on farming is that COVID, as COVID hit, farming hit its purple patch uh, in Australia uh, and maximising their crop yields in great seasons across the country, right across the country in most commodities and in good prices. So the last three years have seen farming um, take advantage of that and get into quite a strong place, I believe.
5: I was going to say, does that mean that people have been able to get ahead? Have they been able to uh, get ahead of their uh, loans, servicing them, put some away? Uh, Are you seeing that, term deposits, et cetera?
4: Yes. So what we see is, um, you know, we we lend to to farmers to purchase properties to investment improvements on the properties, also the working capital. So each year, the biggest uh, the biggest thing each year is the, the middle of the year when the, the winter cropping program goes in. There's a lot of input costs around that. And so we see a big increase every year in the working capital for clients. And then there's a big repayment at the end of that year. And this past year, we've seen very significant repayments, although they're delayed into 2023 because of the wet conditions. Uh, that are there and some of the logistics, Um, there's a massive crop out there. Western Australia's got one of the biggest crops ever, so 25 million tonnes, good prices. And over those three years, yes, farmers have actually been stepping forward and and really repaying their debt levels um, and also growing their businesses. And you would have seen that come out on the other side a little bit with the pressure on uh, on rural property prices. There's still very strong pricing uh, there and there's still a lot of demand for good quality properties sitting out there.
5: So, if people have been able to repay their debts and invest in their properties, uh, should we start to see more efficient production in the years? You know, how does that translate? And, and do you see that, uh, with that rise, a increase in production ability?
4: Well, Australia has also um, dealt really, really well, and farmers have been on top of this. So... Farming has been about you know, how you get better outcomes every single year and how you deal with the conditions and manage those variable conditions. Uh, you know, Australia has really volatile weather and seasonal conditions, and um, Australian farmers deal with that really, really well. There's always a challenge no matter what. We've just had you know, fantastic wet seasons, and there have been floods across places. They've been too wet to get on. There have been people bogged. Um, but nevertheless they 're always looking at how they can put the most efficient farming processes around the best quality um, seeds fertilizers, uh, and they are they 're benchmarking all the time against others they're all, they have a real thirst for how they can do things better and as what we have seen as a result um, from all of those things, the input from the CSIRO et cetera um, is that we 've actually got much much more production um, coming out of the relatively the same sort of weather and seasonal conditions than we did when I started you know, 27 years ago it's hugely improved, I mean 27 years ago there was hardly any um, zero till hmm. um, now everything's zero till nearly everything's zero till, it makes such a huge difference just on its own uh, and people are, the farming community always has but they're looking more and more now at the soil sciences uh, and the farming sciences that mean that they can actually do well and better in the, in the poor times but, and really excel when the seasons are good
5: so does that mean more farmers are profitable?
4: I think that you would say there are, more farmers are profitable. Um, the number of farmers has come down, and that's a trend. As you know, people leave smaller farms, farming consolidates. So more farmers are profitable, and the, the larger, successful farmers uh, are doing very, very well. They're really growing their, their balance sheets and their businesses, and they're very, very substantial, um, and they're very prof- professionally run.
5: So that gets me to my uh, next question. Uh, In your 27 years of experience, what makes a successful farming family? Let's talk uh, private families. Um, What what about their behaviour helps them get ahead?
4: Well, I think that farming families are still the backbone of Australian farming. And we just wouldn't have a a vibrant or successful or or growing industry if it wasn't for Australian farming families. So they, they do a fantastic job. And I think... Um, the things that make them successful are they think and feel farming, but they think and feel farming in an economic sense. So they actually really think about everything as far as what's this going to do for our business or our our family. Um, The real advantage for farming families are that often they really understand what's happening with the seasons around their own properties, the properties they're on, they really know how to work them. Um, and they're committed and they can make decisions very, very quickly because it's their capital they're talking about and their profitability they're talking about. So they can make fast decisions. Um, and I've, I've just never seen a more committed group of people um, into farming. But at the same time, with that thirst to do things better and always uh, always assessing how they can do things better. So they have got a real go-forward attitude. Um, and successful, to me, would mean that you know, they're committed into doing it They've got a long-term perspective. You can't actually be successful with a short-term perspective at all in farming. They're thinking about the quality of their farmland to make sure it's actually getting better, um, and that actually adds value and a lot more value these days as we're looking more at the sustainability around farming. Um, and they, they understand the economics of it and how to manage the seasonal changes, so they're just very, very efficient managers. And finally, they do have people they have to deal with, and they the, the good operators are excellent people managers,
2: Peter Norblanch, the CEO of Grabo Bank, who will be retiring in May. Researchers at Flinders University have used new technology to show how much soil moisture affects temperature and the incidence of heat waves. This study shows how using methods like vegetation management to reduce the amount of moisture that's lost from soil could help actually reduce extreme temperatures. Flinders University Associate Professor Huade Guan explains the recent findings.
6: Normally, we understand that global warming, we expect to see more number of hot days. So I take uh, Adelaide as an example. So in the past, from 1960s to 1990, the 30 years, on average, the heat wave days in Adelaide is about 17. But this number, well, the number of hot days has increased to about 26 uh, in the last decade. But the research, we also find that there's a lot of year-to-year fluctuation of number hot days almost everywhere in the world, right? And then that variation, and we find can be related to variation of root zone moisture. So, for example, if you have a, a year, have a wet soil, then you better to see uh, a small number of hot days and... If it's, uh, you have wet soil, then usually you see the, the number of hot days decrease. So that process helps to cool the landscape. Similar like human body. So in hot days, we sweat, right? And evaporating of our sweat actually help to cool our body. So Australia actually, for about every 11 years, then you will have a very big wetting, we call it wetting episode. So like 2022, very wet. So a lot of water fought on the continent, and previous one will be 2011, 2011, 2012, right? So that actually helped to cool our weather. So I expect that this year we will have a small number of hot days in Australia.
7: As you mentioned, the number of hot yeah. days vary from year to year and yeah. this variation can be linked to soil moisture. So in those years with wetter soils, the number mm. of hot days tends to be less.
6: Yes, that's correct.
7: And this and, and then me- how does that link to the bigger picture and what we then can identify coming? Is this a pattern that we now can see?
6: Yeah. So now you have a very big wetting year. But what what happened In the following years, so we have another 10 years to go, right? Until the next wetting year. So in these wetting years, we like to keep water, keep moisture in our landscape that will help, right? Usually vegetation cover will help to actually uh, retain some of those water in our landscape. But if the vegetation cover is very dense, so then in the subsequent years, so those vegetation uh, cover, will use a lot of water, so quickly deplete soil moisture. So because vegetation use all the water, so soil become quite dry. So toward the end of that dry interval, before the next wetting years, soil is so dry, so that can increase the bushfire risk. So if I I put it into the picture that previous wetting years is 2011, right? And then we have very serious bushfire in 2020 and 2021.
7: How can better vegetation cover right before a wet year help to retain more water in our landscapes? When we're thinking about those years headed uh-huh. for a drought.
6: So what we could do is we try to thin our vegetation cover after the wet year. Like for example, this year would be the good time to reduce some vegetation density in some area.
7: So to avoid bushfires, we need to reduce our vegetation after these wetter episodes.
6: I believe so. So that you will keep this moisture content last longer. I, I think people have done this like aboriginal people. I, I don't quite understand how they do it, but I think they probably capture this cycle. They know where they're going to have their prescribed burn, right? So in, I think in our government now, some agencies start to plan this prescribed burn. And, and I think it's the year right out of the big wet year, I think it's a good time to, uh, to do this.
7: But what can mm-hmm. people do in- the agricultural sector?
6: For individual farm. I think probably think about this cycle, right? Because some years very wet, or maybe just one or two years very wet, but another 10 years quite dry, right? So perhaps think about what kinds of crops that should be grown in the farm. So you you have some drought tolerance crop would be good.
7: Does the research go before 2011? Can we see that this average 11-year cycle has been happening? before then?
6: Yes we actually see four or five such a cycle in the past 50 years so we see that so the one before 2011 will be 1999 that's another one wet years.
7: To gain a little bit more understanding about what's currently happening we know that Australia has uh, endured a lot of floods recently we're Mm -hmm. now currently in a heat wave potentially drought is on its way is this very typical to what was predicted many years ago are we seeing what we thought we would be seeing through data yeah. and predictions and studies
6: the research right based on previous situation so from that experience i expect to see the heat waves occurrence will be the likelihood will be reduced for this year because we the soil our landscape now is wetter than normal so i expect to see lower number of hot days compared to other years for this year but when it goes right out of this year probably for another at least. It's ten years. We'll see drier climate.
2: Flinders University associate professor Huare Guan speaking with Dimitri Panagiotaris. It's 19 minutes to uh, past 12.
1: You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Weather and markets are up next, but in the meantime, as Australia's dairy industry reaps the rewards of high prices and good conditions, many farmers are looking at new ways to improve their herd. And that includes looking at U.S. genetics. Sarah Lawrence spoke to U.S. genetics representative Carl Kent at the International Dairy Week in Victoria last week about why he's visiting Australia.
8: Worldwide, the U.S. genetics is recognized as the highest-ranked genetics. In fact, when we look at um, uh, the rankings of genetics on the male side of it, and if you look at the top 100 bulls around the world, uh, about 88 or 87 of them come from the United States. Uh, The next largest country would be uh, Canada, and they would have about... 11. however, six or seven of those are actually bred in the United States and then imp- exported to Canada. And there's one bull in the top 100 that comes from a European country. So when you look around the world and you look at the level of genetics, why we have out, we, we have been luckily to rank higher than anybody else, and uh, that's why the, there's been a huge world demand for our genetics.
9: And so, Carl, what's inspired you to come over to Australia?
8: Well, Australia um, had, has been developing and is developed to be one of the best markets for U.S. genetics. Uh, there's, there's a lot of progressive dairymen here in genetic uh, in, in Australia, and they are doing just like every other dairy uh, person around the world, trying to improve it. So what they want to do is go to uh Uh, be able to source the best genetics so they can make the fastest genetic progress so they've seen seen the united states and actually when we look at um, the exports that uh, of genetics to australia um, embryos is one of the big markets is what the australian uh, dairymen are buying and and Australia is actually the number third ranked country as far as buying embryos from the United States. So they are one of our huge customers there. And the other uh, a genetic export that we market a lot to in Australia is uh, semen. And uh, semen, uh, Australia ranks in the top 10 countries in the world for buying semen from the United States. So um, one of the things that we're here for is just to uh, say thank you and answer any questions that, you know, you know, can we help you some more and uh, to let you know that we care about doing business with you.
9: Why is it so important that there is this global community in the genetics area?
8: When you look at what's happening globally as far as population, it continues to explode and one of the big things that they need especially for those growing populations is protein and they recognize that one of the best sources of protein is milk and so when we look at worldwide we just think that the the and believe that the demand for milk protein is going to continue to be higher and higher and grow and increase so overall we think that there's a good future as far as in the dairy industry uh, uh you know uh, in in the countries that are growing and 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 uh, and as their levels of income increases in those countries that also helps uh drive their uh, market towards getting more protein as well too so as those countries develop
2: U.S. Genetics Representative Carl Kent ending that report. We'll head to the southeast now, where Peter Kerr has the results from the Mount Gambier cattle sale.
10: Good afternoon, Cassie. This is the Mount Gambier cattle report for the 21st of January. Numbers fell sharply as agents showed a 305 head of live weight and open auction cattle. A large buying group were present, but not all active on the small number, with the trade processors, feeders and restockers all represented. Quality was very mixed, with brought about some mixed results in price. The steers of the trade made from 380 to 420 cents. Similar heifers from 335 to 405. Feeders were active from 332 to 372 cents on steers and from 337 to 380 cents a kilogram on the heifers. Yielding steers were sought by feeders from 362 to 390 and restockers from 350 to 370. The trade operated on yielding heifers to 385. Feeders were active from 305 to also 385, with restockers buying from 285 to 305 cents a kilogram. Grown steers and bullocks lost 20 cents. They sold from 330 to 370. Feed is operating from 315 to 390. Crow and heifers gained up to 20 cents. They returned from 360 to 370. Feed is active to 365. Its manufacturing steers range from 260 to 315. Heavy cows ease 15 cents. They returned from 240 to 302. Lighter lots made from 220 to 250. With a pair of heavy bulls making from 280 to 290 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service.
2: Peter Kerr there with the Mount Gambier sale results. And John Trager has the results from Dublin.
11: Good afternoon. Numbers increased as Asians offered 6,000 lambs and 2,000 sheep. Quality was generally good to very good, with steady competition from the usual buying group seeing prices slightly higher than the previous sale. Some larger lines of lambs presented in the Eyre Peninsula and these attracted solid processor and restocker support. Extremely light lambs sold from 52 to 73, with heavy weights ranging from $180 to $197. Light older lambs sold 110 to 136, as many weights ranged from $145 to $176. Heavy lambs sold $5 to $8 a head dearer, as they ranged up to $212, with extreme heavy weights selling from $220 to $260 per head. Light ewes sold from 45 to 70, as medium weights sold from 75 onwards, with restocker sale at 175, with heavy weights selling from 90 to 118. dollars There were too few cattle for a meaningful report. This is John Traeger at the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour.
2: Thanks for that, John Traeger. There we'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now. We're senior forecaster Jenny Horvat. How's the latest? Good afternoon
12: good afternoon cassie so
2: what uh, are things looking on the, like on the radar
12: yeah, look, it's all looking pretty stable and not a lot of cloud around the state today. We've got a little bit of high cloud drifting across from NT, but that's the really high cirrus, so we're not expecting anything out of that today. A little bit of cloud pushing up on the coast, and we did see a little bit of fog around the southeast this morning with the visibility getting down to 100 metres um, earlier this morning at Mount Gambier Airport, but that seems to have lifted pretty well at the moment. And so generally for the state today, we are looking at dry and mostly sunny conditions. There's a little bit of a a weakening cold front that's going to clip to the south and head over to Tasmania sort of overnight. So tomorrow morning, or it's really sort of overnight, we couldn't rule out a little bit of light morning shower activity around southern and western coast, but we're really not expecting anything with that. And so as we still maintain our um, ridge to the south, we're going to be in that southeasterly airstream on Thursday as well. Again, looking like pretty much mostly a dry day for the state on Thursday... We've got that moisture up in NT, so we could start to see a little bit of that pushing up right by the NT border on um, Thursday afternoon. But I'm talking very north of the state there. We could just see a little bit of shower or thunderstorm activity again. But for most people, for the public holiday tomorrow, we are looking at pretty much a a dry day through there. It's just then as we head into Friday that things start to get a little bit interesting, especially for the western parts of the the state. We've got this trough of low pressure moving across from... um, WA ahead of that we'll see our wind shift northerly so we're going to see those temperatures becoming pretty much hot to very hot across the state ahead of this change that will start to come across from WA on Friday. So bringing some showers and some thunderstorms mostly um, west of Ceduna on the Friday. We'll be monitoring those storms with the trough there because they could get a bit gusty at times and we could see some bursts of intense heavy rainfall as well with that but like I said it's mostly out in the very far west where that activity will be on the Friday. As the system starts to move across on Saturday, unfortunately we've still not got some good guidance regarding the timing. It's still very inconsistent with our guidance with this system moving across the state on Saturday but nevertheless it will come across on Saturday. We can expect to see showers across most of the state on the Saturday um, and with the thunderstorms it looks like they're going to be confined to the north of the state. So pretty much north of Woomera and in the far northwest, there we could see those storms again being a bit gusty and maybe a little bit of heavy rainfall at times. So generally cumulative rainfall until the end of Sunday with most of that really happening on the Friday and Saturday and to an extent in the north on Sunday as that system contracts there. We are looking at around 2 to 10 millimetres across the state, but with those thunderstorms we could see some locally higher totals of 10 to 20 millimetres and there is also the chance for some higher totals of 20 to 40 millimetres and that will be across the north and the far west there, Cassie. Thanks
2: for that, Jenny. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be mostly sunny tomorrow. There's a slight chance of a shower in the far east in the afternoon and evening. Near zero chance elsewhere. There's also possibly a thunderstorm around in the afternoon and evening as well. Overnight temperatures are going to fall to the low to mid-twenties with the daytime temperatures reaching around 40 degrees. The lower western will be sunny tomorrow morning uh, and there will be the chance of a thunderstorm in the far east there as well. Overnight temperatures getting down to 15 to 21 degrees, but the daytime temperatures getting rather warm up to 31 to 38 degrees. I'm Kelsey Huff, more to come on The Country Hour as we approach
1: 12.30. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Hough. Huff. Cassie
13: Huff. Hello, it's
2: great to have your company for the program today. I'm Cassie Hough. Now, uh, sustainability is coming into a lot of clothing these days, but how about in shoes? The Australian wool industry has partnered with a French company to manufacture running shoes that use wool.
14: The people in that company have a lot of it. History uh, in in the in the sportswear shoe industry, uh, and they've really started started this startup brand, and and there's a lot of eyes on them. So this is an awareness piece as much as as much as anything in the first instance.
2: I'll have more on how that has been developed. And uh, no butchers, bakers and candlestick makers, but blacksmiths, vet nurses and wool classes are among the careers given the nod by the federal government today in its updated apprenticeships list. I'll have more details on what that means for agriculture soon. But we'll first find out what's making news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon.
15: Hello Cassie. In the news this afternoon a court has heard that a South Australian teenager allegedly left home with a Molotov cocktail saying that he was going to kill so many people he'd be on the news. The 17 year old boy who can't be identified for legal reasons has faced the Adelaide Youth Court charged with possessing an item with the intent to kill or cause harm. Magistrate Ted Iliano said the boy was facing serious charges and was a serious risk to the community. Inflation has come in higher than expected with the Bureau of Statistics' official consumer price index up 7.8% over the year to December. Economists were expecting a 7.6% annual increase in prices, slightly increasing the chances of another Reserve Bank interest rate rise next month. And an Adelaide court has heard that a former general manager of the Adelaide Remand Centre, who stole more than $100,000 in cash from prisoners, suffered from a serious gambling addiction. Brenton Williams pleaded guilty in August to confer skating $112,000 from a safe used to hold cash that was on suspects when they were remanded in custody. Mr Williams' defence said the theft was the act of a desperate man and asked the court for a merciful sentence given that he's taken responsibility for his actions. More news at one o'clock.
2: Thanks for that, Matt. Now, uh, as uh, I was saying, we've got more to come on the updated apprenticeships list shortly. But first up, a vaccine developed to protect pigs from the deadly Japanese encephalitis is months away from being rolled out on a major scale. The mosquito-borne disease has killed thousands of pigs over the past year. The vaccine's been developed by La Trobe University researchers and will then be manufactured at APM Animal Health ACE laboratories in Bendigo once it's been approved by the regulator. APM Animal Managing Director. Director, Dr Chris Richards, explained to Sarah Lawrence how the vaccine has been developed.
10: Yes, yeah, so
16: last year um, we were severely impacted by Japanese encephalitis as an industry. So it impacted our pigs and their reproduction on litters. But also, as we all know, it impacts human health. And, and that's always a serious concern for any of us because we all live in rural communities.
17: So the impact on on pigs' health it caused, has caused abortions in in pregnant sows
16: yeah that's right so we would have litters that just uh, wouldn't bear any live piglets or sometimes very weak piglets so that just put massive holes in our business and you can't plan for it you feed the animals you care for the animals and then all of a sudden there's no piglets so it had been devastating for a number of pig farms within Victoria And our farm was one of those.
17: So devastating for some farms, including your own, as you said, Tim. What sort of percentage piglet loss are we talking about?
16: So for our farm, we saw around a 15% loss. Uh, I would have said we were, of those that were affected by Japanese encephalitis, our farm was impacted at a lower end. I know of some farms that would lose a whole week's production uh, and things like that. So it was very devastating. And then... Same similar regions have then um, got to the end of last year and then had to deal with floods. There's there's always something with farming, but what we always need is we need tools, and a vaccine is a tool to help us with uh, Japanese encephalitis.
17: And apart from the massive financial loss caused by those those premature deaths, how about just just the mental strain of, of witnessing that happen and being powerless to do anything about it?
16: Yeah, it is always tough because the people uh, that work with pigs, you know, love and care animals. So for them to see piglets not born alive, that is always tough. And it's nothing that we've done. It was was purely based on different flood events that then brought different birds to the area, that brought uh, mosquitoes that, you know, that carried the Japanese encephalitis, and then the mosquitoes would, would get it and give it to our pigs. So we've had to do a number of things on our farms, Uh, In the short term, whether it's, you know, keeping water away, keeping grasses down and trying to control the mozzies, uh, but a vaccine is just another tool for us.
17: And as we understand, this vaccine has been developed by La Trobe University researchers. It's expected to hit the market in coming months once it gets sign-off from the APVMA. I'm sure, Tim, that uh, pea producers such as yourselves will be lining up for it once it's available.
16: Yeah, I have no doubt, and I talked to numerous pig farmers, and we're all keen to to understand uh, how um, efficient it will be with our animals, and how quickly we can get it into our into our So, um, not only are we keeping you know production going, but also looking after our community and, and human health.
17: Obviously, it will come at a cost. Is there a cost cut-off, a point at which it becomes reasonable or, or unreasonable, and is there going to be need for a subsidy perhaps government support for the vaccine
16: there's always a cut off for any any price of a vaccine with this one having such an impact on human health i think it is a great conversation that industry need to have with the government to say well how can we make this so we get maximum exposure from our industry you know to support the work that the department of health is also doing uh, to keep mosquito levels down to protect human health. So I think it's a great conversation for us to have and hopefully the government puts us up there as an industry that will be proactive and want, want to help with the mosquitoes and Japan, Japanese encephalitis in the community.
2: That was actually Tim Kingma, who is a pig farmer in northern Victoria near Achuka. He's the president of the Victorian Farmers Pig Group. Uh, they're speaking about what a relief it is that the vaccine is on the way. But here is Dr Chris Richards, who can explain a little bit more about the development of the vaccine.
3: Well, we've been working with um, La Trobe University at, uh, at Bandura. So they, they've got a vaccine technology that could be applied to, the, uh, to make a vaccine against um, Japanese encephalitis. So uh, we've been working with them for the last six months and they've been able to um, develop uh, a vaccine for us.
9: And why are you so driven to see this vaccine developed?
3: Yeah, I mean, our, our focus is on uh, on the pig industry and our clients and to, and to make sure that they don't have to go through um, a similar circumstance to where they went through last year where they lost thousands of pigs because of uh, JE.
9: And what will give your vaccine its edge? What's its point of difference as opposed to the ones from overseas?
3: Well. The main thing at the moment isn't that there isn't one available from overseas that we can use in Australia. So we're just trying to bring something that our clients can use uh, now, and the pig industry can use now. And, and until uh, such time as uh, as other better vaccines can come to market,
9: and give us an idea of the timeline.
3: Yeah, we'd hope it to be under six months. So you know, we have the the vaccine uh, already to be manufactured in, in Bendigo at our ACE laboratories there. And so it's really uh, just waiting on uh, the regulator to be able to give us the permit, so that we can so start supplying it to farmers.
9: When you do get the permit, what scale of of rollout do you expect?
3: We should be able to supply um, very quickly to most of those the pig industry who, uh, who are wanting to use the vaccine. So the vaccine will be will be used across the sow herd. So um, it, it's, a, it's a smaller number of doses. Um, compared to if we had to vaccinate all the progeny pigs.
9: So, are you expecting tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands that you'll you'll roll out?
3: Oh, I'd be hundreds of thousands. So, you know, probably up to up to around four hundred thousand doses is uh, is where we'd be uh, looking at.
9: And do you have an idea, once approved, how many jobs this might create?
3: Probably only only a two or three jobs. We've already got a, a, a large workforce that are operating um, out of that facility. APM
2: Animal Managing Director, Dr Chris Richards, speaking to Sarah Lawrence there. And uh, we might try to catch up with some uh, South Australian pig producers about how things are looking here because it's my understanding that no pigs, uh, to to the knowledge of uh, the pig farmers I spoke to, um, have actually contracted Japanese encephalitis this year so far. So that is good to know. Moving to uh, some uh, news out today, it seems that blacksmiths, vet nurses and wool classes are among the here is given the nod today by the federal government on its updated apprenticeships list. The recognition follows funds, oh, sorry, the recognition allows funds to flow for employer subsidies and direct payments to apprentices and trainees of up to $5,000. The National Farmers Federation President, Fiona Simpson, says she welcomes investment in training.
18: This is uh, very good news, Amelia, I think, to see these sorts of professions being recognised in a list like the apprenticeships priority list, albeit that this list covers occupations that are actually formally treated as apprenticeships and occupations that are also treated as a traineeship, which is a subtle sort of difference. Um, but an important one, I think, as we go forward towards our, our 2030 aims of having agriculture as an industry of choice and agri- an industry where young people um, understand that they can be supported to have a strong career and understanding the skills too, I think, and recognising the skills that are Um, involved in some of the professions within our industry so very good news this morning as you say two quite specific ones around wool classing which we know uh, there's a huge shortage of and also uh, piggery stock people but also some peripheral ones like vet nurses for example which are in huge demand uh, gardeners tree workers blacksmiths and and horse people so uh, very good news this morning I think
19: We've spoken at end about the, the workforce crisis. Where are we at at the moment in far, as far as the trends we've seen in more recent times? Has anything started to ease in any sectors or do we just need more of this, more um, investment into our younger people and people looking to retrain for the sector?
18: Look, that's absolutely right. Uh, we need more of the same. We know solving this workforce crisis in agriculture is complex. Uh, We know that it involves bringing in more people from overseas who are are really wanting to work in our sector and some on a short-term basis and some wanting to settle in Australia. But we also know it's very much about uh, placing agriculture as an industry of choice for people who are school leavers or young people. And right now there is this enormous sort of opportunity, I guess, and, and ambition and excitement around agriculture. And it's important that we can harness the excitement that's around uh, you know, the sustainable agriculture industry of the future with the right skills and the right people and give those people pathways uh, in our industry and give people confidence that there are long-term strong employment options within many sectors of of agriculture and so we're going to continue to to work with government and to lobby for not just more occupations to be added to this list but more occupations in agriculture to be recognised as apprenticeships which will provide then support not just for the people entering those those apprenticeships but also of course for the employers that are taking on those people who want to be trained in our sector.
19: Like you say, Fiona, there's uh, a lot of comfort, I suppose, in having a lot of interest from young people looking to take part. I know you at the National Farmers Federation support the, the gap year program, things like that. How many people are you seeing come through that, that I guess maybe then strike a wall, if I can put it that way, and they just struggle to find the next step like the apprenticeship, the traineeship? Are there any examples that you can think of off the top of your head?
18: Oh, look, there's an extraordinary um, gap at the moment, I guess. Uh, Our Ag Career Start program, uh, which, again, we've worked with government to place young school leavers and and mid-term university um, people on farms has certainly been extraordinarily popular. Um, you know, we're working towards placing 75 young people on farms this year, um, following on from an extraordinarily successful pilot year last year. And we know that every one of the people that we placed on farms last year is now pursuing a career in agriculture. But there is a gap in terms of being able to stay with an employer and undertake the, relative, the relevant training that you need to actually really fulfil that job and, and have a full career in agriculture outside the university sector. Uh, we do need and want this on-the-ground training where um, both the students, the trainees and the employers can be supported for long-term um, um, official training, for one of the better word, where um, you know they are supported to to have the skills that are required in our sector and recognised, I guess, as a sector that is not just a, a low-skilled sector. In fact, it's not at all a low-skilled sector, but it's a sector of a, a huge variety of of professions that do need do need official training um, and benefit from that component of being on the job, but also training as well.
19: Fiona Simpson is of course the President of the National Farmers Federation. Joining us this afternoon back on home soil Fiona. let's let's talk about that trip. You've just had uh, a very busy couple of days overseas. Uh, yeah, take us into that busy schedule and what you've achieved.
18: Yeah, thanks so much, Amelia. It has been was a whirlwind few days, I have to say, um, with Minister Murray Watt and some uh, departmental officials as well, travelling to the UK, a couple of days in the UK and uh, another couple of days in Europe, uh, in Berlin, particularly talking about the UK FTA and the EU FTA. And for me, this was very much picking up on conversations um, that I'd been having face-to-face with... Uh, farming organisation representatives, with bureaucrats, with decision-makers, both in UK and the EU, before uh, COVID hit, uh, and of course, those conversations have had to move online over COVID and it was good to be able to go back and, and meet those and see those people face to face again to make sure that they understand uh, the sustainability of Australian agriculture, to make sure that they understand you know, what farmers are doing on their farms and the, um, I, I guess the outcomes we're achieving when it comes to sustainability and, and how, how we do things in Australia and how different uh, the Australian context is to the European context when it comes to managing our environment to managing some of our invasive uh, weed and, and feral pests to, to, to how we manage our animals in this environment where most of our animals are outdoor um, so we you know we, we're very different from Europe where they're all shedded so those conversations are critical um, the uk FDA I think the finalise the very last steps of that FTA should be hopefully concluded soon uh, the prime ministers um, have have agreed that it should occur in the first quarter of this year, and so hopefully um, that's still on track uh, and um, and then the EU FTA, the negotiations I think are on track next round in Australia in February uh, and still I think hopefully on track to conclude some stage this year.
2: National Farmers Federation President Fiona Simpson speaking with Amelia Bernasconi and uh, there have been a few uh, roadblocks with particularly the European Fair Trade Agreement with Australia so we'll keep following that, see if they can come to an agreement over particularly the geographic indicators. Also, uh, if you are keen to start a trade, maybe take a look at the uh, apprenticeships list. looks like there's a lot of options in ag there as well. It's 14 minutes to one.
17: On January 26, across the ABC, we reflect, respect and celebrate what it means to be Australian. Join us for the Woogalora morning ceremony, national citizenship and flag-raising ceremony, a special edition of The Drum, exploring an Indigenous perspective, and the spectacular Australia Day live concert with some of our best Aussie artists. Join us January 26 from 7.30am on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView
11: on digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill.
2: Are you keen to support sustainable fashion, whether it's op shops or using recycled materials or perhaps you're handy with a sewing machine well it's certainly becoming increasingly popular and young consumers in particular are demanding more information about how their clothes are made now an Australian wool company has partnered with a French company to manufacture running shoes that are biodegradable and made from 100% recyclable materials so that means wool I'd be interested to know if you'd be keen to try these out you can uh, text me 0467 nine double two eight. Eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. What do you do to uh, perhaps uh, get more sustainability out of your clothes, that have them last longer, or perhaps you repurpose them in in some way? I'd love to know. Text zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. John Roberts is the CEO of Australian Wool Innovation, and he says that Gen Z customers in particular want to buy sustainable footwear.
14: This partnership's uh, it's quite an exciting one actually. I mean, you know, wool shoes and wool sneakers, wool runners aren't necessarily that new. We've been working on them for the best part of a decade or more. Um, but what was interesting about this one was the, the um, Circle Sportswear uh, are very much a you know a, a sustainability sustainability focused brand, um, and that's their very much their, their daily mantra. And the exciting thing was they came to us and they recognised us as a sustainability partner because we have a natural biodegradable fibre which aligns with their their ethos, if you like. So that was that was um, exciting in the first instance. In terms of what it means for wool growers, is I think you know in the past there had, as I say, there have been shoes with wool uppers. This is a, an entirely biodegradable shoe um, with a with a very very you know significant wool component in it. Um, and for these, particularly in the northern hemisphere, these these sort of very sustainably minded consumers are looking for a shoe that can do all of those things. Be the complete package in terms of biodegradability. So, it's a it's an awareness piece. It's a, it's a it's a demand driving piece. So I think it's it's very good for wool growers.
1: And do you think there's a lot of growth amongst environmentally minded consumers, particularly in Europe?
14: Oh, absolutely. <clears throat> we think that. Um, you know, particularly the Gen Zs who are going to be our biggest biggest customer in the, within the next eight to ten years. Uh, that's that's very much front and center for for that consumer. And that's that's who we need to engage with.
1: So far, I've looked on the website. Only uh, 268 pairs have been pre-ordered for delivery in 2024. So it looks like it's it's still a niche part, and it could be some way off before there's a there's a big market for this uh, demand for for merino uh, in in these shoes.
14: Yeah, I think so. Look, it, it, you know, we, I think it's important to manage your expectations here. It's 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 really exciting, and it's it's a very innovative uh, company, uh, and they've got a lot. I mean, the, the people in that company have a lot of it, history uh, in in the in the sportswear shoe industry, uh, and they've really started started this startup brand, and and there's a lot of eyes on them. So this is an awareness piece. as much as as anything in the first instance. When they're available, try a pair. I think that they they, they are coming online. I think they're available online. I'm not sure if they're available in Australia yet, but uh, we'll be certainly working with the brand to make sure they are. Um, And I think, uh, you know, whilst they might not necessarily look like a lot of wool, it's important to understand that there's about 350 um, grams per square metre in the fabric that goes into that shoe upper. And to give you an idea, it's about 120 grams, you know, in a, in a piece of, uh, worsted suiting. So it might not like, look like a lot of wool in terms of meters, but there's actually quite a lot of wool in the fight in the fabric itself. So, um, Yeah, I think it's a good progression for us.
1: The other key issue for consumers and Australian wool growers is this push in the EU to regulate uh, the labelling on clothing that would rate the product environmental footprint for these garments. There's a concern that the draft approach would have seen wool rated worse than uh, synthetic competitors. Where's that process at the moment?
14: Uh, Well, look, we, we remain at the table of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. Um, and we, we, we're very much involved in ensuring that wool's eco credentials are are not m- misrepresented. Um, the the rollout of the PEF standards has been has been put back again. There's there's an acknowledgement now that um, probably microplastics need to be part of that consideration. And I think there's a growing acknowledgement amongst the uh, the people who are developing that methodology that we also need to look what happens to the garment after it's been dispensed with, um, which, which under the current methodology, it doesn't take into consideration.
1: Do you think the fact that it's now been pushed back is a good thing for the wool industry?
14: Absolutely. I, I, I'm, I've got no doubt that uh, the work that we've done and the papers we've submitted uh, on behalf of Australian wool growers has had a, had a direct impact, probably the direct impact of why, that, why some of this has been delayed.
2: CEO of Australian Wool Innovation, John Roberts, speaking with Josh Becker there about this uh, partnership between uh, a French company and the Australian wool industry to create these running shoes that have, are made with uh, quite a lot of wool. Be interested to see what they're like, to be honest, uh, but I guess just a little while before they're um, available to be seen. Finally, today, um, mushrooms are not a, a vegetable we talk about all that often, but it seems the industry is. Well, mushrooming. But as it welcomes smaller urban growers, safety practices are becoming a growing concern. To address it, growers have teamed up with researchers to create a specially designed food safety program, all to keep Australia's track record of mushroom related outbreaks at zero. Megan Hughes reports.
0: Kim Hunt has been farming on Queensland's Fraser Coast for more than a decade. First with a lime orchard, then diversifying into mushrooms a few years ago, selling to cafes and at
20: markets. We have six grow rooms and we produce about 450 kilos of mushrooms a week. Um, white and Swiss brown. With that come the, you know, white field mushrooms and the portobellos. All of our um, produce is supplied locally on the Fraser Coast, Maryborough and Harvey Bay areas as far as we go. Mushroom
0: farming is becoming more and more popular. It can be done in urban environments and it doesn't require much infrastructure. Australian Mushroom Growers Association General Manager Leah Bremich says while it's an exciting time in the industry, food safety can't be overlooked.
2: Several times a week I'm contacted by growers that want to, so
14: people, Australians, that want to start their own mushroom growing business. So mushrooms are really trendy at the moment. They're really exciting. They grow very fast and Aussies are really starting to
2: embrace mushrooms of all different varieties, which is fantastic and exciting, but it also poses a food safety risk that the requirements for food safety and certification
20: for the larger growers who are supplying into Coles and Woolworths are quite stringent, whereas backyard operators or smaller growers that are selling directly to the markets um, aren't under the same scrutiny as far as certification's concerned.
0: Australia has never suffered a mushroom related food safety outbreak, and the industry would like to keep it that way. But smaller growers like Kim Hunt struggle to use the official food safety certification program, Freshcare, which you need to supply at major supermarkets. She stopped
20: using it about a year ago. So we were fresh care certified for years, and freshcare is a great system, but it's a it's kind of a one size fits all system, so whether it's a small farm or a big corporation, the the same everything applies as a small farm there's just a lot of recording and paperwork and documentation that you have to do for things that for us is just normal like primarily it's my husband and myself we have a couple girls that come in and help us pick so some simple things like um are your harvest knives. Sanitize. Well, yes, we sanitize our harvest knives. Our process is when you finish picking in that room, you take your knife off, you wash it, you spray it with sanitizer, and you put it in a particular spot. And there's only a few of us, and it's really easy to keep an eye on that. But under fresh care, for example, we have to document every time we sanitize the harvest knife. So some of the stuff is quite onerous. It's It's not cheap. Um, You know, you have to pay for the order every year and the the whole process, and it's, it's not a cheap process either, and that impacts on a small farm.
0: So to encourage food safety practices, the Industry Association has teamed up with Applied Horticultural Research to create a voluntary program designed specifically for smaller growers. Fresh care is still required for supplying major supermarkets, but this is for those growers who sell at local markets or to local cafes.
13: Research scientist Dr Jenny Ekman explains. We based it very much on the current industry-owned industry, industry owned food safety certification program, which is Fresh Care, and we looked at that and then we basically took out all the requirements that were not relevant to mushroom growers. So, for example, programs such as this have, have consideration of whether there have been livestock in the growing area. Now there's not many pigs or cows coming into mushroom growing rooms so that's really not relevant. So once you take out a lot of those requirements and you really drill down to the most important things then we could come up with a very simplified standard that growers could use and the idea is that these would the growers would use this and they would do it as a second party certification scheme so it would just be done online and remotely over the phone looking at files rather than having to have an auditor physically come to the property.
0: This program is being trialled on farms to refine it further and there's definitely interest as it's designed to be less onerous. Mrs Hunt says she's feeling positive from what she's seen
20: so far. It'll be much simpler, much better for small farms. I think because I'm the quality control person and I'm the picker and I'm the caser and I do most of the jobs. It's easy for me to know that everything's done, but having a smaller simplified process that we can document less
2: mushroom grower Kim Hunt finishing that story by Megan Hughes. Got a text in from Jesse from Mitcham, saying that they would want their sneakers to be more durable and last longer than six months. I hate it when they fall apart in the middle of a holiday or die the first time they see sand or dirt or water. They should be machine washable. Biodegradable is nice but would rather have them repairable. That's a good point so, and that plays into the durability and I guess sustainability of the product as well if you can repair them as well. Thanks so much for your text there Jesse. More
5: to come on your ABC local Radio this afternoon. Hi Sonia, what's coming up? Hello Cassie. Well we're all worried and concerned about how we can reduce our, our bills. We're going to talk about a couple of things on the cost of living front today. First of all, your power bills. Now this might be a shock to you but apparently they're coming down. Uh, no, <laughs> I got, Well I got mine and I was gobsmacked at how
2: low it was. Oh really? Yes, but I think it's because we didn't have heating or cooling on for much of the last because it was so mild sort of yeah. through that late spring period. Anyway, that's Well, positive. apparently
5: South Australia uh, is right in this because it's about renewables. We'll be talking about that. And can you make your own school uniform if you so choose? It's a lot harder than you might think.
2: <laughs> I can imagine. More to come on ABC Local Radio.
1: Stay connected with your ABC. Find news online at abc.net.au. Select your postcode to see local stories, news, and weather.
9: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.